Well, good morning again. Thank you for being here as we continue the sermon series, Questioning Christianity, with this big question, if God is good, why is there so much evil? I've encouraged you every week to go back and listen to week one if you have not done that, uh, to get a kind of framework for this series. Why are we even answering these questions and what are we supposed to do with the answers to these questions? To use them as shields, not swords, in our conversations with people. So go find that sermon. It's on our YouTube channel, Facebook page, Instagram, and our website. And make sure you make that a priority if you haven't already. So today's topic is, if God is so good, why is there so much evil? Back in June, a 37-year-old woman was driving her three daughters, age six, four, and one, in Brampton. When she was hit, her car rolled, and all four of them died. It was a terrible thing, an evil thing. Why does God let stuff like that happen? A woman who had these three beautiful daughters, who had their whole life ahead of them, stopped in a moment. Why does God let that happen? It's a tough question. It's a question, I believe, that has driven a lot of people actually away from the faith. They hear Christians claim that God is all good and God is all powerful, and so they think, well, then why do those bad things happen? Maybe it's that God isn't actually all good. Maybe he's mostly good or somewhat good, but there are some things that he just lets go. Or maybe they think, maybe he's all good, but Maybe he's not all-powerful. Maybe he definitely wanted to protect that woman and her daughters, but he has limits in his power. Or some come to the conclusion, maybe he's neither all-good nor all-powerful. In fact, maybe he's just not there. What do you say to that as Christians? I mean, those are the three logical conclusions, right? If there is an unexplainable evil then either God can't stop it, God won't stop it, or God isn't there. Well, I want to answer all three of those. In fact, I want to answer it a whole lot. Today, I'm going to do three things for you. This question, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? I'm going to answer it, and then I'm going to really answer it, and then I'm going to show you how to really, really answer it. Those are my three parts. So let's answer it. First, God isn't there. God isn't there is not a logical conclusion to come to when evil happens in the world. See, in order to have a standard for what is evil, you have to have an absolute standard for what is good, and it can't just exist in your mind. In order for you to say that's unjust, or that's terrible, or that's destructive, or that's evil, you have to have some standard against which you're comparing. And if that standard isn't absolute, then it's just your opinion that those things are bad and evil. In Nazi Germany, millions of Jews were executed. And the people who ordered those executions and many who carried out those executions thought they were doing something good. Now, we all here would say that's not good, that's evil, that's terrible. But if we don't have an absolute standard outside of ourselves, it's just their word against ours. And we may have won the war, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily right. So to say something is evil and therefore God can't exist is illogical. You have to have God in order to say something is evil. But that still leaves two possibilities, right? Maybe God can't stop it, or maybe God won't stop it. What do we say to that? Well, the answer to that question is actually pretty easy also. 
If you're asking the question, why doesn't God stop evil? The logical thing to next ask yourself is, well, have you done anything evil? And unless you're a sociopath, you'll say, yes, I've done some things that are evil. So then the next logical question for you is then, well, why hasn't God stopped you? See, before you worry about why is there so much evil out there, you have to ask yourself a very personal question. If God is supposed to stop evil, why hasn't he stopped me? And the answer is, God is all good and all powerful and is being patient with you. That's what 2 Peter 3 says. It says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, if you're asking this question, if there's so much evil in the world, where is God? You're actually really close to where God wants you to be. You're at a place where you can have the gospel shared with you because you're starting to realize that there is evil in the world and that you're part of it. And the answer is that Jesus has died for that sin. He has absorbed your evil so that you don't have to receive the wrath of God for your sin and has made a way for you to live forever in perfection with him. But here's the problem. While those answers seem really simple, they're usually not the right answers. And that's because the person who asks this question, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world, is usually not asking that question. They're asking a different question. See, the person who asks this question most often asks from a place of pain. They're asking when their spouse cheats on them, when they lose a child before that child makes it to high school. They're asking when the test results come back positive for cancer. They're asking when their boyfriend commits suicide and their child goes rogue. And it doesn't seem like there's a way forward. People ask this question when their hearts are broken. And so the question they're asking is not really, if God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? The question they're usually asking is, why is God letting this evil happen to me? And that's a really tough question. Because if we're being honest as Christians, the answer is we don't really know. We have some assumptions, we have some promises, but at the end of the day, if we're going to be biblical about answering that question, the answer is we don't really know. And it's hard for some people. So what I want to do for you today is show you that even though Christianity may not have the exact answer to why you're going through suffering. Christianity does provide a unique set of resources for dealing with suffering. That against all other worldviews, Christianity stands up as the most functional and unique way of dealing with suffering, and actually the most positive way of dealing with suffering. So first, let's talk about the ways that we normally deal with suffering. The first way that people usually deal with suffering is by saying, just accept it. Now, this has a couple different manifestations. The first of those would be to accept it because it's your fault. This would be kind of the Hinduistic way of dealing with suffering. Uh, Hindus would say they believe in a cycle of reincarnation. So any evil or suffering that you've received in this life is a result of some evil that you did in your past life. And so if you're suffering right now, you really have no one to blame but yourself past self. 
And so you should just accept all pain and suffering as your fault anyways. You're not allowed to complain about it. You're not allowed to make it anyone else's problem. It's just yours. Just deal with it. Another way this looks is to say it's not real anyways. This would be kind of the Buddhist way of thinking of suffering. Uh, Buddhism has the Four Noble Truths. The first of those is that life is suffering. The second is that suffering comes from desire. So the idea is um, you only suffer because you're attached to things in this world, like your kids or your spouse or your money or, or your job or whatever it is. And whenever that thing gets threatened, that's why you suffer, because it hurts. And, and so the third noble truth is then detach from everything so that when those things are threatened, you don't suffer. Buddhism says suffering is not real. It's just a construct of your own attachment to things in this world. It's all your fault anyways. You should not be so attached to things. But there's a problem with this. First of all, we all know there are some things in our life that no matter how hard we try to detach from, we could never truly fully detach from those things. And secondly, if you are in the process of constantly detaching yourselves from the things of this world, you become more and more useless to the world. Because the less you care about stuff, the less you're willing to invest in it, the less time you're willing to spend on it, and the less you're going to benefit it. A third way that people just accept it is to say, it'll make you better. These are the people who would say, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You know those people. This idea is a way to show your, your moxie, show your strength, right? And at least in my opinion, this is one of the better ways that people generally deal with suffering. At least it's not sniveling snowflakes wishing that the world was easier. But there's still some struggles with this. If you believe suffering is there just to make you better, then you're probably going to become more and more arrogant as you suffer. Because you're going to say, I'm more prepared or I'm better equipped to go through things in life because I've suffered. You know, I grew up here, this was my life, and, and you don't know, you're not like that. You, you, lived, up, you lived in a, a soft life or, or something like this, right? You're going to think of yourself better than other people. And secondly, if this is your worldview, then if you're at least going to be consistent, you have to say that suffering is something we shouldn't necessarily stop. If someone else is going through suffering, then you must say to yourself, well, if suffering makes people better, then it's probably good that they're going through that suffering. It's going to make them better in the end. And so you can't complain about injustice or complain that somebody else's suffering should stop. You should let it happen, at least if you're going to be consistent. There's, of course, another big category in how people generally deal with suffering, and that's the way of the modern Western secular person. Just avoid it. North Americans have made a business of avoiding, limiting, and escaping pain. It may be the most uh, central truth in, in everyone's life who lives in, on this continent. From the mountains of pharmaceuticals we'll consume, from the amount of money we'll spend on luxuries, the amount of time and energy we'll put into protecting ourselves and protecting our children, we are doing everything in our power to avoid pain. But there's a big problem with that. And actually, social scientists are starting to realize this. Western secular people are far worse equipped to deal with suffering than any other culture. Because we have spent all of our time and money and energy trying to avoid pain, 
but we can't completely eradicate it. So when pain and suffering comes into our life, we're not prepared because we haven't taken the time to prepare for it. You think of the modern Western person, kind of like a glass canoe. If you're a canoe uh, maker and, and you make a glass canoe and you're trying to sell it, you'd say, oh, look at this, it's so beautiful. Look, you can see through to the bottom, you can see the fish or whatever's underneath you. You want this type of canoe, but then a person comes in and says, well, what happens if I run into a rock? And then the, the salesman says, well, then it'll break into a million pieces, of course, but just avoid all the rocks. Is that not the way that our Western life often is? We spend so much time making our life look beautiful that we don't take the time to prepare for any sort of obstacles that come in our way. And many people have realized over the last, last six months that they've been driving glass canoes. I just saw a survey from the United States that said over the six months of the pandemic, one in four teenagers surveyed had considered suicide during these last six months. Why? Because their lives were about avoiding pain, not preparing for it. And when suddenly they were lonely, suddenly they had no purpose, they had no way to deal with their suffering. Why is this? Well, for Western people, it starts with where we find our meaning. Western people tend to find our meaning in things out there. We, we have this sense that we're supposed to find our meaning in life, so we find our meaning in work or family or hobbies or whatever, something out there. And so we spend our time and our money and our energy and make it our identity. But the problem is every one of those things is susceptible to suffering and pain and destruction. And so when those things are taken away from us, it's almost as if the centerpiece of our religion, of our personality, is taken away from us. Just to put this into a Christian context, maybe to empathize a little bit, imagine if somebody was able to completely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was not the Messiah. That would mess with a lot of people. People have spent their whole lives believing this, much of their career teaching this. It would destroy people's worldviews. Do you realize that for the modern Western person, that happens every time whatever they've poured their money or their time or their effort into is destroyed or hurt? But it goes a step farther, because when that happens, that means that they have no release valve for their suffering either. For example, as a Christian, if you suffer, you have a religion that tells you that, first of all, suffering is not forever. You're going to go to heaven someday, and it's going to get better, right? And so suffering draws your mind upwards to the things that are waiting for you in heaven. But if your religion is on earth, and the things of this earth are being destroyed, then the centerpiece of your religion is taken away, and you have no religion to deal with the fact that you don't have a religion anymore. Your whole worldview is shattered. We wonder why we're all depressed. Avoiding pain has not fixed our problem. But Christianity is different. And I want to show you just three ways in which it is different. Um, these three ways are not going to prove that Christianity is true, but they are going to hopefully show you that Christianity has a unique set of resources for dealing with suffering that no other worldview or religion can offer you. Those three things that I want to walk through are solidarity, community, and eternity. So first, let's talk about solidarity. Christianity teaches that God came into the world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, not just to die on the cross, but also to suffer with us. So we say this in the Creed when we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate. We're not just talking about those moments when he was with Pontius Pilate, but his entire life up to that point. The book of Isaiah, chapter 53, says this, 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. See, the God who was infinite and perfect and had immortality and and this amazing existence in the Trinity with God changed it. He humbled himself, contained himself in humanity. His infiniteness became finite. His perfection was passed on to you through his death and resurrection. His immortality became mortality, and he did all of that for you. The book of Hebrews says it this way, because of that, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. So your Jesus knows what you're going through. God gets it. And no other religion offers that. No other religion or worldview has a God who comes down and suffers. Just think about that. If you've lost a child, God gets it. He lost his son. If your father abandoned you, God gets it. Cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you felt abandoned or betrayed, God gets it. If you felt physical pain, if you've been abused, God gets it. The solidarity that Christianity can offer you, that God went through what you have gone through and more, is completely unique. The God whom you pray to, he gets it. And compare that to the other worldviews that we mentioned, right? Jesus doesn't suffer because of something he did in a previous life, but he suffers because of what you did. He doesn't suffer to make himself better. He suffers to make you perfect in God's eyes. And he doesn't try to detach from suffering. He invests in it. He takes humanity into himself. And this is a little bit deep theology, but Jesus continues to be human right now. Remember, he ascended into heaven. He is tied with humanity forever because he will not detach from you. And so the logical conclusion that we can make is that we may not be able to say exactly why somebody is suffering, but we can at least say one reason that it's not. It's not that God doesn't care. Because God was willing to go through suffering. But it's not just that God was willing to go through suffering in the past, but he still is willing to go through it now for you. There's this amazing section in Acts chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus is uh, being converted to Christianity when he sees Jesus in person. And I just want to read you the first five verses of Acts chapter 9 here. Uh, It says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, which was a, a name for the Christian church, whether men or women, he, would, uh, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Who was Saul persecuting? Jesus. How? By persecuting Christians. In other words, Jesus feels the pain that you're feeling every time you suffer. He knows what you're going through and he's feeling it with you. And that's the kind of solidarity that no other religion can offer you. So Christianity offers you solidarity. It also offers you community. Um, The other ways of dealing with suffering, you usually get one of two things. 
you get either relief or recompense. Either relief in maybe a sense of like Hinduism or Buddhism where you're going to get your karma right and you're going on to nirvana or the all soul. Or maybe you're going to get recompense, kind of the idea of Islamic heaven, right? You're going to receive all these benefits as a reward for all the suffering that you went through. Christianity offers you those things and better. Of course, it offers relief. There is going to be an end to this painful life. And of course, it offers recompense. You're going to receive the joys of heaven and be with God forever. But it offers you one other thing, and that's community. See, what the biblical view of heaven is, is not that I'm going to experience a whole bunch of good things for me, but that I'm going to experience a whole bunch of good things with you. God talks about heaven as a place where all the church is together and is enjoying the perfect relational existence that we were all built for, but that was broken by sin. See, those other worldviews are worldviews of singularity, all about me, but the Christian worldview says heaven is a place of community. And when you're suffering, isn't that exactly what you want? You just want someone to sit with you. You just want someone to hug you. You just want someone to hold your hand and tell you it's okay. We're going to talk about how that happens in real life, but that is the promise of eternity in heaven. But not just in heaven, on earth also. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The explicit, explicit teaching of Christianity is that if anyone is suffering, it is not just our responsibility to console that person or to support that person, but to literally make it our business to carry that person's burden. Now, it's going to look different in a whole bunch of different situations. And to be honest with you, I think North American Christians aren't very good at this. We're pretty good at saying, I'll pray for you. We're pretty good at throwing some money at a problem. But when it comes to actually carrying each other's burdens, we struggle with that. But that doesn't mean the teaching of Christianity is any less true. The way I would say it is, Christian, or excuse me, suffering uh, will necessarily produce community in a Christian church necessarily will. If a church is truly following Jesus and his word, when others suffer, they will carry each other's burdens. And finally, Christianity offers eternity. Now, all other worldviews, for the most part, offer you some form of eternity, uh, but Christianity's eternity is different. In Christianity, we do not believe that we will be in heaven forever. We believe that we will be in heaven until Jesus comes back and destroys this earth and rebuilds it into a new heaven and new earth where we will live in our physical bodies together in perfection forever. And this is laid out in 2 Peter chapter 3, when it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. If you have a prized possession one-of-a-kind item, and someone breaks it. They might offer to pay for it or to replace it, but you know as well as I do, there's no replacing a one-of-a-kind one item. What you really want is that item back. And that's what God offers you. He doesn't say, I'm going to make it better or I'm going to make up for it. He says, I'm going to make it right. The world that you crave, the world without suffering, it is coming for you. So just look at this with me. Unlike karmic religions, Christianity says a lot of suffering is unjust and you can fight against it. It's not just your fault. Sometimes it is the fault of other people. 
Unlike Buddhism that teaches to detach, Christianity says to actually lean into loving one another. Unlike those who try to use suffering to make themselves stronger, Christianity says it's okay to feel broken by suffering and depressed about it. And unlike secularism, Christianity offers you an unshakable sense of meaning and purpose that this world can never touch because it's the resurrection of Jesus. So Christianity offers you a unique set of resources that no other religion can offer you. It is the most functional way to deal with suffering. But I told you I was going to answer the question and then really answer the question and then really, really answer the question. And so this is the really, really answering the question part. Because when someone is suffering, they probably don't want you to walk through a comparative religion course on how Buddhism and Christianity and Hinduism deal with suffering. They want you to just love them. So if we're going to use the answers to this question well, we need to figure out how to use these questions. Excuse me, use these answers. So I want to give you five pieces of advice. The first one is to ask what happened to them, not what's wrong with them. When someone is dealing with life in a negative way, if they have vitriolic language, if they're just unpleasant to be around, generally our reaction is to get angry with them and say, what's wrong with them? But if we're going to be biblical Christians, then we have to say fundamentally no person is any worse than anyone else. They are simply the product of circumstances. Jesus says it like this in Luke chapter 6. He says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In other words, what comes out of a person is simply a result of what is inside a person, and what is inside a person is a result of what has been done or put into them. So when a person is speaking hurtful words or acting in a negative way, it's probably not that they're a fundamentally worse person than you. It's probably that something's happening to them. And if you ask that question, what happened to you, not what's wrong with you, first of all, you're going to breed a deep sense of empathy for that person. But second, you're actually going to deal with the real problem instead of just getting angry at their behavior. The second thing is to not answer too quickly. Oftentimes when someone is suffering, we want to give them a quick answer. Here's why God is doing this. Here's the comfort for this. But actually the Bible would encourage us not to do that. In fact, to just sit with somebody quietly. The story of Job is a story of a very rich, wealthy, or wealthy and resourced man who lost just about everything. He lost his wealth, he lost his assets, he lost his marriage, he lost his children, and he lost his own health. And after all that happens, in chapter 2 of Job, it tells us, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Seven days and seven nights. You got to think these guys had like jobs or families, but they were willing to just sit in silence with their friend. Not to give him any answers, but just to be there. And in fact, if you read the rest of the book of Job, uh, when they start talking, they start saying a whole bunch of really dumb stuff. They probably did the best when they were just quiet and sitting there. And so let that be an encouragement for us that sometimes we just need to sit with people. How are we doing at that? 
Job had three friends who came and were willing to sit with him for seven days and seven nights. Do we have that? That's why we put together life groups the way that we did. Life groups are built so that we can build friendships, build relationships when times are good, so that when times are bad, we have people who know us and care about us and know enough about us to do something about it. I'll just tell you a personal example. That during this six months of the pandemic, I've struggled with a lot of stuff. And do you know who overwhelmingly were the people who asked me how I was doing during the pandemic? People in my life groups. And I've had some unique opportunities during this six months to help people who were in my life groups because I knew them. I knew what their life was like. I was with them week in and week out. And I heard that they worked at this kind of job where this was how they got paid. And so during a pandemic, I thought, well, that probably is affected. So how can I help you? And I was able to help them all because we were in life groups together. We knew each other. We were friends in the good times so that when the tough times came, we were there for each other and knew enough to do something about it. So I'd encourage you to get in a life group. If you had one that was meeting before the pandemic, we can make it happen online. Of course, right now it's tough to be in person together, but we still have a Zoom account where you can do Zoom calls, or maybe you can just call on the phone. If you want to start a life group, you can definitely do that. We would love to advertise your life group so that more people can join it and build relationships so we can be there for each other when things are tough. We can sit with each other when things go wrong. We need this for another reason, though, not just because people need relationships, but because if we want to grow, this is the only way it's going to happen. Oftentimes when a church starts, the pastor is everyone's point of contact. He's the person that they, they connect with because he's probably the person who took them through a class to bring them into the church in the first place. But did you know just about every church hits a wall at about 125 people in their church? And it's because of this thing called the Dunbar Principle. Robin Dunbar was a researcher. He found out that a single person who is really socially capable can really only realistically hold on to about 150 stable relationships. Think about that. The pastor, if he's the most socially capable person, can hold on to 150 relationships, but he has a family and an extended family and probably some friends. So you end up at about 125 people. You know how many people call Cross of Life their church home? about 125 people. Which means that if we're going to grow, it's going to be from people making connections, not with me, but with you. People counting on you, not on me. You being there for people, not me being there for people. I'd like to think that I'm a decently socially, socially capable person, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think I can manage 150 relationships. Well, I need you. Third, to be willing to listen. Your first step, of course, is to be silent, but eventually you want them to start talking. And so offer to listen. In 1985, Dr. Vincent Folletti uh, conducted a landmark study where he basically connected childhood abuse to long-term adult depression. And in his study, he was uh, presenting some treatment options, and one of the treatment options that really worked well was he told doctors to give a, uh, gave doctors a script, excuse me, that they were supposed to say to their patients that went something like this, what happened to you was terrible and never should have happened. Would you like to tell me about it? And what that did was it allowed the patients to put into words, into cogent thoughts, all the feelings and events of their abuse in the presence of a person of authority who wasn't going to judge them. 
and the results were amazing. People started to actually deal with their childhood trauma. But one thing that was really interesting in Dr. Folletti's study is that he said this shouldn't surprise us. The Christian church has been practicing private confession for 2,000 years. Dr. Folletti's not a Christian. So if, if a Christian says we should confess our sins to one another, and a non-Christian says we should confess our sins to one another, it probably means we should confess our sins to one another. And if we're going to confess our sins to one another, we need some one another's to hear those confessions. And so if we're first and foremost willing to listen, to ask them to put it into words, we're going to help people. Fourth, pray with them. Of course, it's good to be an authority figure who represents the body of Christ on earth, but ultimately you want to bring that person to Jesus. And so pray with them. One of the amazing things about the book of Psalms, which is a biblical book of prayers, is how real and raw it is about prayer to God. I think a lot of times we think of prayer as like, I have to say all the right words, and it sort of has to be in some old-timey English a little bit, and it has to be really respectful and beautiful. Not the Psalms. Psalms are raw. The Psalms call out to God and say, God, what on earth are you doing? This does not make sense to me, and I don't like it. And honestly, I'm really angry and depressed about it. Read Psalm 88 when you go home. So ask them, can we go to God with this? Because Job's story with all of his friends is one of Job getting really angry at God, but at the end of the book, it says Job did not sin. Why? Because he was taking out his anger to God in prayer. But then also pray with them because of what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, if you want peace that goes beyond understanding, then bring your prayers and petitions with thanksgiving to God. Why does he say that? Well, because thanksgiving expands your perspective. When you stub your toe, you're not thinking about your RRSP or what you're going to do this weekend because pain narrows your focus. But Thanksgiving expands your focus. It allows you to look across your whole life and say, maybe this moment is full of suffering, but for 20 or 40 or 60 years before this, God has been faithful to me and given me all sorts of blessings, the greatest of which is the promise of grace for salvation forever. Pray with Thanksgiving. And it'll make that suffering seem so small in comparison to what God has done for you. And finally, remind them of the promises. When we watch people go through suffering, it's easy for us to want to rationalize. They say, well, this is probably what God is doing. Um, as biblical Christians, we just can't do that. We can't ultimately say why. But we can remind people of the promises that God has made to them. Promises like, I will never forsake you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Come to me if you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All things work for the good of those who love God. Cast your anxiety on me because I care for you. Remember those promises. They will give you the peace to move forward in your suffering. So why does God allow bad things to happen? We have some pretty good guesses, some promises, some assumptions, but ultimately we can't say for sure. So what we do is take the unique resources of Christianity and show to people who are suffering their compassionate God. And when they see his compassion and the willingness that he has to suffer for them, 
They will find the peace that goes beyond understanding. We pray for that from our mouths to people who are suffering. Let's pray to God for it. God, we suffer. People around us suffer. And we know that it's not because you don't care. You care deeply about every person who is suffering, who has suffered, who's feeling the effects of other people's suffering. We, we know you care about all those things. And so we ask, first of all, for you to give us perspective with thanksgiving. Remind us of the good things that you have done for us. And also remind us that we can come to you raw in prayer. We can be honest with you about what we're going through. And that you'll get it. You'll understand. And finally, we pray that you would bring people who have been broken by the world to us so that we can help them deal with their suffering and show them that there is a resource that goes beyond understanding, a peace that comes only from the Holy Spirit's power in Jesus Christ. Pray that in our church. We pray that in all churches. Amen.